following the ministry of the word, let's continue to sing from this psalm, the stanzas three and four. The text for this morning is Psalm 130. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the last month and a half or so, we've been confronted with death repeatedly as congregation of Carmen West. If you read the columns in the Manitoba Church News, I'm sure that you've been able to take note of that. There was, for example, the death of Jason DeWitt, who was riding a motorbike through town when a pickup truck turned off in front of him. And he died as a result of that collision. And then, subsequent to that, there was the death of Lane Overbanky. He was an elderly member of the congregation, 84 years old. And at such a time in life, we conclude, well, uh, this happens. As someone gets older, they can develop certain conditions and pass away as a result. Then there was the death of Wyatt Paul Zanstra, full-term baby, died shortly before he was due to be born. And so we're confronted with a wide spectrum, beloved, of ages, times when, when someone can die. We're confronted with what can be called an accident, an unintended event, someone dying in that collision, that was Jason, dying of old age, dying of who knows what, just before birth. These things happen. It's not only elderly people who can die. It can happen to any one of us, really. None of you have a guarantee that you will make it to the end of tomorrow or the end of next week. There are no guarantees. And the question we all face is, where do we stand in relation to God? Are we ready to leave this life and go to be with him? And if we're confronted with death, perhaps we suddenly in the coming week or two weeks, we receive a diagnosis from, from a doctor. And we think, maybe this is the end. Maybe not. But what do we do? Or a loved one hears a diagnosis or has an accident and dies. What do we do? Do we turn to the Lord when, there, when we're in the depths of misery? Do we look to him for hope? and strength? Do we fall back on his promises? Or do we turn away from him in disappointment? Psalm 130 was written by a psalmist who feels overwhelmed. God seems far away. Where is the truth of his promises to be with his people? And the psalmist knows that he's dependent on God's grace. 
he is deeply aware of his own unworthiness. And nevertheless, he cries out to the Lord of the covenant. We hear the psalmist acknowledging his iniquities and his need for God to hear his pleading. He also expresses confidence in the promises of the Lord to forgive repentant sinners. And this gives him reason to conclude his psalm on a note of expectant hope. Psalm 130 helps us to put our misery into words and to express our longing for the hope that only the Lord our God can give us. And so the theme for this morning is cry out to the Lord from the depths of misery. Remember three things. His mercy, his promises, and his steadfast love. Cry out to the Lord from the depths of misery. Remember his mercy, his promises, and thirdly, his steadfast love. The heading above this psalm refers to it as a song. Well, some of the other psalms have the description as psalm in the heading. Now, the Hebrew word for psalm can be used to describe a song that is sung together with an instrument. The word for song, however, is more general. It can refer to a song that can be sung at any time, anywhere, without musical accompaniment. And the heading above Psalm 130 shows that this song has become part of a collection. This collection is composed of Psalms 120 to 134. And each one includes the heading, A Song of Ascents. What does that mean? A Song of Ascents. It implies going up. And in this case, it means these songs could be sung by believers as they went up to Zion for one of the religious festivals. Zion was on a hill or a mountain. So you go up if you're coming from surrounding areas. Now in this collection, there are happy songs. Think of Psalm 122, which begins with the words, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And for sure, going to worship the Lord together with his people can really make us happy. But life isn't always like that, is it? As a matter of fact, sometimes we can feel quite the opposite. Did you come to church today burdened by cares and sorrows? Maybe it's because of things that you have done or that maybe you're doing that are now affecting you very profoundly. Maybe it's because of something someone has done to you that you are sorrowful, that you are down. Or are you sitting here with all kinds of questions in your mind about God's dealings with you or his dealings with people that you care deeply about? then Psalm 130 is a psalm you can turn to. It's the expression of a deeply troubled heart. 
And these words have been written in scripture to comfort and strengthen us as we come to worship our God. Psalm 130 expresses hope in the midst of difficulties, troubles that may have been caused by the psalmist's own sins. Have you ever stood there pondering the wreckage that you have caused yourself? You feel overwhelmed, but at the same time, you know that the Lord wants you to reach out to him and be thankful that he gives us words to speak as we draw near to him. Psalm 130 begins with the words, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. What kind of depths is the psalmist referring to? The term is a word picture that gets used a few other times in Scripture. It's used in connection with (coughs) the deep places and seas and oceans. In Psalm 69, verse 2, David cries out, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. In verse 14, he continues in a similar vein. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. The deep waters are scary places. They are a picture of danger. And sinking into those waters means you will drown if there is no one to rescue you. In Psalm 130, the psalmist feels like he's drowning. He needs help, and he needs it soon. We don't know what his problem is, but that doesn't matter. This makes it much easier to apply this song to ourselves in times of distress. It gives us boldness to reach out to God for help, even though we know we don't deserve it. The psalmist cries out to the Lord. And note that the first time this name Lord occurs in this psalm, it's capitalized completely. That reminds us that the psalmist is addressing God as Yahweh. He's using the covenant name of God. God is the great I am, the God who is there for his people. The psalmist is appealing to God on the basis of God's covenant promises. And remember what this involves. Centuries ago, God established a covenant with Abraham, promising to be his God. And scripture makes it clear that this covenant has continued. It was not just meant for the Jews. It it is also meant for us who turn to God in faith. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians 3, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And this means that we have the right to use the name of the Lord in calling upon him. And his name reminds us of his promise, of his presence and his promise to be with us. When we are in trouble, we can call upon him. And rest assured that he cares about us and he promises to be there for us. In verse 2, 
the psalmist continues, O Lord, hear my voice. And now he addresses God with another word. When you see the word Lord without the whole word being capitalized, the Hebrew term Adonai is being used. And that's a reference to God as the master of everything. He's the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. And because he has made everything, everything belongs to him. The term highlights his majesty and his authority as Lord. All he has to do is say the word and things will get done. And keeping this in mind will help us to preserve the right attitude toward God in prayer. We can't come before him with a list of demands. Approach him with a humble heart. We need to know our place in his presence. He is in heaven. We are on earth. And nevertheless, when we draw near with believing hearts, we may do this with confidence. In Psalm 130, the psalmist doesn't approach God in a hesitating way. The Lord knows everything, but as a loving father, he wants us to lay our burdens before him. He wants us to call out to him and express what's in our heart. And this psalm helps us to do that. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Our voices are unique. God has given us the gift of speech. And we each have our own ways of expressing ourselves. And God wants us to use this gift to the honor of his name also in prayer. A father or mother can hear many voices clamoring for attention when children are around. But if you are a parent, you will be especially attentive to the sound of the voice of your own child. And why is that? It's because you have a bond with him or her. He or she is precious to you. If you hear that voice crying out for help, you will be quick to respond. And that's how it is with God, too. He knows us individually. He's familiar with our circumstances. His heart is filled with fatherly love. He will never close his ears to those who approach him in humble faith. Do you feel overwhelmed by difficulties? Do you have a sinking feeling when you think about your situation? Whatever your troubles may be, reflect on God's power and his willingness to use his power to help his children. Cry out to him in your distress. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That's how the psalmist puts it. In the expression, pleas for mercy, can also be translated as pleading or supplication. And this is not a reference to an orderly prayer. It's not a term for long sentences and polished phrases. It describes 
the kind of cries that you make when you are terrified. You know you need help and you need it soon. And when we cry out to God like this, it's not because we think he owes it to us to give us help. We simply pray with the conviction that he is willing and able to hear us. He is powerful, gracious, and loving. And he has shown this in a very special way through Jesus Christ. God was under no obligation to send his only begotten son into this world. But he did. And through Jesus Christ, we are confronted with the love of our Heavenly Father. We learn about his compassion and his willingness to help those who are needy. No greater display of mercy is possible than in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our salvation. He died for our sake, the righteous for the unrighteous. And because of his sacrifice, God is willing to listen to the cries of his people. Cry out to the Lord from the depth of misery. Remember his mercy. And remember his promises. This brings us to our second point. The psalmist doesn't take it for granted that the Lord will listen to him. And we shouldn't do this either. Otherwise, we will no longer stand in awe of the fact that we may approach God for help. After all, what are we by nature? We are sinners. Psalm 130 expresses this deep awareness of sin. And that's why in the history of the Christian church, this psalm has come to be known as one of the penitential psalms. Think of the word repent, penitential. The psalmist knows that the Lord is a holy God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And note again how the psalmist alternates the way in which he addresses God. The psalmist is sensitive to the fact that he lives in a relationship with God. That's why he once again begins by using God's covenant name. He knows that within this relationship, he doesn't honor God always as he should. We don't always honor God as we should either. He reaches out to us in love, promising forgiveness and life in fellowship with him. And do we always respond in, with love in return to that? No, we don't. And that's a very humbling fact. It should never cease to amaze us that we are in a covenant of grace and God keeps on coming to us with his promises. Promises that give us life and light and hope. We haven't earned this. We'll never be able to either. 
If God wouldn't give us the gift of forgiveness, we would be lost forever. As the sovereign creator of the universe, he has every right to hold us responsible for having ignored him, or worse yet, for having rebelled against him. Who would be able to protest against his justice? Anyone who downplays sin doesn't have a proper view of God in the majesty of his holiness. Anyone who downplays sin also has a misplaced confidence in himself. Such a person doesn't see himself as measured by God's standards. This can be born of a wrong sense of pride. Someone can also be spiritually blind or unwilling to see his faults. On the day of judgment, each person will have to give account personally for what he or she has done. And it will be impossible to ignore our sins or to hide behind the sins of others. The author of the letter to the Hebrews writes about this in chapter 4, verse 13. And no creature is hidden, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the term that the psalmist uses for iniquities highlights his actions as being wicked, perverse, depraved. The emphasis here is on a person's liability or guilt. If you are liable or guilty, you deserve to suffer the consequences, whatever they may be. And when we are guilty of sinning against God, the ultimate consequence is hell. Sin infects our being from conception onward. King David mourned about this in Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Sin isn't merely something we learn to do by following bad examples. It's in us, right at the very beginning of our existence. And what's in us gradually comes to light as we grow older. And we are responsible for that wickedness. And that's why we would surely die if God would take our sins into account. Humanly speaking, our sins cut off all hope of fellowship with God. And who can survive the punishment we deserve? Who can make amends? No one. And are we being gloomy when we echo these words of Psalm 130? <clears throat> no. We're being realistic. Expressing our unworthiness is a way of acknowledging God's grace. We honor him by showing that we don't take his loving care for granted. The psalmist marvels at how God deals with his people. But with you, there is forgiveness. And the psalmist knows this because of God's promise to Abraham. I referred it 
referred to it just a moment ago. Think of what that promise means. Think of those words to Abraham. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God is saying this to to sinful people. Abraham was a sinner. His offspring, they were sinners. And yet God says, I will be your God. And what does that imply, beloved? It implies that God is a forgiving God. That he is willing to establish such a relationship with sinful people. And so in that light, against that background, the psalmist says, but with you, there is forgiveness How special that is. And the word that the psalmist uses is very unique. It never occurs in a context of people forgiving each other. This particular term is unique for what God does. It can also be translated as pardon. And this is not a pardon where the guilt remains. God even removes our guilt Within the covenant, he graciously grants us the complete forgiveness of all our sins. And he promises to do this for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that's a promise he will never break. And what a strong motivation this gives to approach God with a repentant heart. We read in Isaiah 55, verse 7, Let the the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What a glorious promise. Our sins may be very many. And they may be very serious. But if we are serious about turning away from sin and turning to the Lord, we may be sure of forgiveness. As written in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because there is forgiveness, we can stand before the Lord. And this isn't a kind of motionless standing that the psalmist is referring to, the result of respectfully appearing before the Lord. It's not only a matter of our position before him. By grace, we can stand before the Lord in order to learn from him and to receive instructions. After all, we are his servants. We have a task to do as his representatives in this world. And the psalmist points in this direction when he writes, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We become God-fearing when we're convinced of our sins and of the forgiveness which God graciously gives. 
Thankfulness fills our hearts that God is willing to remove our burden from us. Instead of fleeing away from him in terror, we now humbly draw near to him. We rejoice that we may live in fellowship with him, trusting him from day to day to provide us with what we need for his service. That's God's ultimate goal in drawing us into fellowship with him. He isn't satisfied with restored relationships. He wants us to learn to live to the glory of his name, functioning the way we were meant to. The psalmist continues, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. This waiting is not an expression of a doubtful hope, because God's word is a word of promise. And we can wait expectantly because we know that the Lord listens to the prayers of his people. And trusting in him, we learn to exercise patience. He is in heaven. We are on earth. We can't expect him to act automatically in response to human hopes and expectations. Instead, we place ourselves in his care, trusting in him to keep his word. He will act according to his promises, fulfilling his purposes in our lives. Waiting for the Lord, our covenant God, isn't a passive activity. It involves being on the lookout, full of anticipation for his answer. The psalmist repeats the idea of waiting, but then he switches to the other term for Lord, namely Adonai, which expresses the idea of God as master. He knows that God is sovereign. He is ultimately in control of everything and will respond in his time and in his way. My soul waits for the Lord. Adonai. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Such watchmen look in the direction of the sunrise. And similarly, as we wait for the Lord, our hearts must be turned toward Him. Can you wait? We live in a culture of Instant gratification. People want what they ask for right away. And if not, they can become frustrated and demanding. And that's because they're focusing on themselves. Psalm 130 teaches us the importance of waiting. And to do this in the right way, our focus should be on God not on ourselves. Life isn't about God fulfilling our desires and expectations. It's about us finding fulfillment in his desires and plans for our lives and the life of his people. Ultimately, it's about finding fulfillment in him and rejoicing in the riches and glory of his grace. Put your hope in God's word.
There he reveals who he is and what his desires and his plans are. There we find many promises, promises to motivate us to live in fellowship with him. But when you base your prayers on God's promises, you may be sure that he will act. Pray sincerely, but also expectantly. Don't forget what you ask God for. Sometimes that can happen, especially if some time goes by. Finally, what we prayed for comes. And perhaps we realize it when it happens. But sometimes the sense of anticipation has disappeared and our hope has grown dim. We're no longer waiting for the Lord like watchmen for the morning. It can therefore be good to record some of the things you ask of God. That can keep your hope up. It can also increase your thankfulness when you look back and you see how he has responded. Cry out to the Lord from the depths of misery. Remember his mercy and his promises. And also remember his steadfast love. This brings us to our third point. Beloved, the hope of the psalmist is strong. And this is not because he's so pious that he feels God is certain to answer him. His hope isn't based on anything in himself. It's based on who God is. He knows that God is reliable because that's the way God has shown himself to be. And that's why he calls out to the people of God, O Israel, hope in the Lord. In the same breath, he tells them why they should do this. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. The Lord is loyal in his relationship with us. He has willingly bound himself, promising to be with us and to take care of us. It pleases him to do this. And don't we enjoy his care in many ways? Don't you see evidence of the steadfast love of our covenant God in your life? Even when we go through difficulties, let's not forget to count our blessings. Our joy as Christians will grow as we learn to appreciate the depths of the love of the Lord and to respond to him. He is faithful. He is good to us. His love never fails. Consider how all-encompassing the covenant love of the Lord is. Psalm 103 reminds us of our mortality. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. And that's a sobering thought. It can be quite depressing if that's all there is to say about human life. However, in Psalm 103, verses 17 to 18, we encounter a very uplifting truth. 
But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And the Hebrew word for love in Psalm 103 verse 17 is the same one we encounter in Psalm 130 verse 7. And so remember... That love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Never forget that. This truth gives us reason to put our hope in the Lord. Life can be short. Sometimes far shorter than we would hope. But when the Lord promises us steadfast love, he isn't bound to to what happens to us in this life. There's an eternity ahead of us. And keeping this in mind should help us to see things in the right perspective. Deferred expectations are not the same as unfulfilled expectations. Our God gives us reason to extend our hope to the life that is to come. Can we be sure of this? After all, we continue to be sinful human beings. We trust in the Lord, but our faith is so weak. Don't give up hoping in the faithfulness of our God. The psalmist reassures us, with him there is plentiful redemption. The redemption that God gives us is more than enough to cover all of our sins. Never think that what you have done is too much to be forgiven. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is more than sufficient to cover everything. There's nothing that we need to do in addition to this. Reflect on the closing words of Psalm 130. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In the Hebrew text, we can see that this is a very emphatic statement. It can be translated as, He himself will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist is making the personal pronoun explicit here. He himself will do this. And in this way, he's making it clear that no one else contributes to our salvation. God is the only Redeemer. He himself is the one who promises to take care of this. And he has fulfilled that promise through the death of his only begotten son on the cross of Golgotha. In Romans 3 verse 22, the Apostle Paul speaks of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God gives this righteousness to all who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Paul goes on to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul uses the word redemption to remind us that the price for our salvation has been paid in full for us by Jesus, the promised Messiah. 
And beloved, this is why we should never rely on our own efforts to save us. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation in any way. Simply trust in the redemption that the Lord provides. He has given us Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us on the cross. He died in order to obtain life for us. When our God declares that the price to atone for our sins has been paid in full, it's a fact. With him is plentiful redemption, says the psalmist. And that means there's an abundant supply, enough for all of us. Never give up hope, no matter how serious your sins are, and even if their consequences are overwhelming. One day, we will be delivered from all our troubles to enjoy perfect fellowship with God forever. Amen.